1: everyone it's mind rolling with Raghu marcus and a very special guest that we have here today robert thurman hi bob
0: i hi ragu how are you
1: it's great uh, i was Hello, just everybody i was just telling uh, bob that we did meet uh, behind the scenes somewhere to his holiness the dalai lama teachings and uh-huh. so on but we've got a couple of other occasions that I, I, wanted, I figured it'd be fun to mention uh, while we we're uh, on the show, so to speak. Sure, sure. Um, when you have a good friend who's also a good friend of mine, Danny Goldman. Oh, yeah. And we were in Kenchi together with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji. Uh-huh. And he, you passed by there with, with your wife and some ch- yeah. and children and yeah. danny said oh that's my friend robert thurman and <laughs> <laughs> i remember that to this day that uh he mentioned that to us uh, Who he said was close to his holiness and and uh, and a buddhist ex- excerpt expert All Right. so uh that was one time and, and you were
0: sitting with with maharaji at, the, at that yeah. moment well, not really? at that
1: exact moment, but oh. we were hanging. We had just, I, I believe, you know, we're getting into real details now that are a little uh, too long to remember exactly. I
0: remember driving by and look, you look across the little bridge over into yeah. the ashram yeah, and seeing Maharaji and feeling very wistful that I didn't have time to stop and see him uh. as as Dan and other friends were sitting with him. I, I do remember a number of times going by there because I used to drive past it to go to Delhi or whatever.
1: We were in Almora at the time. Yeah, we were in, yeah, the were in Almora, So So uh, all the way till uh, uh, maybe just a few years ago when His Holiness the Dalai Lama did the Kala Chakra ceremony, a, an uh-huh. incredible teaching that I do want to get into with you on this podcast. Oh, great. But We were okay. fortunate enough, uh, mm-hmm. at that time, His Holiness the Karmapa 17th, was also there, I'm sure you, you right. must have met up with him as well and but we were fortunate to meet up with him in his room in his hotel room with Sharon Salzberg, another good friend of yours and mine
0: yeah, yeah,
1: and uh I had met the sixteenth Karmapa and uh oh not long before he passed. he did a black hat ceremony in l a eighty eighty one something like that right and, um, and the interesting thing for me at the time was he he, he was doing everyone got a chance to have a one on one for just a, a brief moment, yeah, and and get a cut get a silk scarf a kata. the blessing parade yes and <laughs> as I got about six feet away from him and a number of people in front of me, I just got this wave that went into me, wow. and I went oh my god that's Maharaji it was the same. Uh, a feeling uh, oh, of, of spaciousness, so awesome. whatever it was, you know, that I could describe yes, yes. in so many different ways. And it was awesome. I had yes. never met anybody uh, um, remotely like Maharaji at that time. We met a lot of, you know, quote unquote gurus. Um yes. So uh, I, we went and we we were with this. He was at the time maybe twenty eight years old or something. He, well, he's only 31, thirty one, thirty thirty two probably now, something like that. Right, right. And um, and he we did you know a little blessing thing. We just hung out and talked. It was very worldly about his issues around what was going on in India for him and you yeah. uh, yeah. all that stuff. And uh, Krishnadas yeah. was there as well, joking with yeah. him about you know why don't you come live in Montana? It's pretty much like Tibet. We'll give it to you. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, then we say goodbye and, uh, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty down to earth guy, Bob, yeah. but I, after he just, you know, held our hands, each one of us and thank you for coming and, and put a kata on, you know, just like that simple. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: I went into a very, very deep meditative space. Which oh. and that's not something I would be doing walking around in hotels. And then we were, and so the next step was, oh, we were all getting in a car because we wanted to go hear Bob Thurman giving a talk that <laughs> night. And I sat, I don't know, thirty feet from you in a chair. I was like riveted to the chair and hearing oh, really? this. Hearing, this
0: is in Washington, yeah, D. yeah. Tucker? Yeah. yeah, I remember uh, that that big hotel space. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And um, so that was another way in which we came together, because I was hearing every word in a way that I probably...
0: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, uh, I love that 16th uh, come up. He's so cute. He's so sweet. And he is the real one, there's no doubt.
1: Well, I couldn't believe it that... Uh, I, f- I could feel, oh, this is what they're talking about when they speak of reincarnation and tolku. Right. I could feel whatever right. that thing was. That thing <laughs> was in the 17th.
0: That thing is love, love for you and for all beings. Yeah. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, oh, and uh, the first thing I want to talk about is this article that was in the Sunday Times. Oh, yeah. Okay, first of all, um, ev- just so everybody... Uh, who doesn't know, it would be good to know, that uh, Bob is the uh, professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at Columbia University, and right. the president of Tibet House, which uh, f- for, uh, I mean, that's been going on three decades, right? I mean, that's all right. we're in our 30th year, yeah. Yeah, and uh, just hosting so many great things, uh, and particularly, of course, uh, His Holiness. I mean, no, I've okay. been... And we'll talk. I just want to hear, you know, a lot about his holiness and your relationship with him. And, and, and of course, there's this wonderful uh, graphic novel about the uh, Dalai Lama called Man of Peace that Bob just put together. Everybody, you must get this. I mean, I when I got it, I was like, wow, a graphic novel. It was like so odd kind of a thing, you know, I, <laughs> I and then I started to first of all, how long did this take, Bob?
0: Oh well, it took. Uh, I've been on it about five years, and uh, and my colleague William Myers, who started it, he started it 20 years ago. His uh, late former wife got him to do it, and uh, with his permission of his holiness. And uh, but he didn't know so much about the later years of his holiness' life after the escape. You know, when he started, it was going to be sort of like. Um, you know um, Kundun, you know, like the movie yeah, Martin Fossezi made yeah. and uh, Melissa Matheson yeah. wrote, which is the, really the young Dalai Lama then escaping to freedom. Yeah. But that was one third of his life, less than one third, and now he's had, you know, sixty years outside, and um, he's been uh, under a lot of trials and pressure, and he's doing an amazing thing, like a Gandhian attempt to liberate yeah. his his culture and his people. Uh, from a very powerful military empire, basically, really, is what they really are, China. Yeah. Uh, and nonviolently, which international thing, you know, with, uh, you know, a tiny group of people, the Tibetans, with the 1.3 billion Chinese, and yet he wants it done nonviolently, and he's stuck to that in spite of yeah. quite a lot of provocation. Yeah. So I think it's a marvelous story, and, uh, and th- through my efforts, especially the last two years I worked on it most of everything, mm. all my other projects got put on hold, Mm. pretty much, and to get this done. It was a big job. And then the artists they worked about two years.
1: Yeah, I mean, the art is incredible. Uh, and everybody out there, I mean, I know all of you know who the Dalai Lama is to some extent or another, but to to really, to be able to see this in a graphic novel is highly That's unusual true. and very, uh, I have to say, entertaining. It's weird because there's some horrific stuff in this thing of what the there, Chinese it, did. Uh, but yeah. it, it it I was turning the page. I was go, you know, I had to, you know, it was like a comic. <laughs> I mean, it was so brilliant, yeah. Bob. Really brilliant. Oh,
0: great, great. I, I'm so glad. It is also to reach out to the millennials. You know, the uh, Michael Burbank, especially, kept us. Mm. The third author, co-author, kept us focused on that. Mm, perfect. And uh, that was how it was originated to reach out. It's, in a way, one lady at a book fair corrected us and said, "You shouldn't call it graphic novel," which we have been doing. And that's not wrong, but it's a graphic biography, she was saying. Really
1: uh-huh. Basic. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. Um, but we
0: didn't want to, sadly, you know, His Holiness Himself is too humble. He would never want to make claim that he's praying and doing all these great things and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, yeah. so that's yeah. why when he writes his autobiography, he kind of... Doesn't really say about his role and what well, how amazing it is what he's doing with his mind, you know, because he, he, he doesn't want to claim stuff for himself.
1: So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now back to this article. There's one yes. thing that kind of I maybe I got this wrong, but it pissed me off actually.
0: Oh dear! Oh, what happened?
1: Well, they they talk about you as being a you know very close best friend of His Holiness and his chief apologist. What the
0: heck? Oh, did they that say. Oh, did they actually use that word? They use that word. What, oh, uh, well, here I'll read.
1: One of the Dalai Lama's most famous and oldest Western pals, Dr. Thurman, is still his best and most passionate apologist.
0: Well, I don't mind that. You know, apologist is, just means an academic, it's like an academic word in this case, actually. And it means someone who is not uh, attacking the person, you know, because in academia, you're supposed to attack everybody. If you study them, you're supposed to say, well, what's wrong with them? You know, Mm. and actually, Buddhist studies, I have a whole thing I say in academic Buddhist studies or Hindu studies, because there's a subliminal either secularist fanaticism or prejudice or a usually a Judeo Christian uh, thing. Mm. And so, the big thing that gets you promoted and gets your book well known in academia is what's wrong with Hinduism? What's wrong with this kind of Buddhism? Uh, What's wrong with that teacher? did this guy have a bad habit or did he have a girlfriend in the woods or something? I mean, it's just, if you can say something negative, then they really love it. (laughs) The academics. And I always joke and I say, uh, academic Buddhist studies is kind of a joke because there couldn't be an enlightened person, Buddha, 2,800 years ago or 2,500 years ago. Because He didn't have a PhD from Harvard. Yeah, yeah. So he couldn't be enlightened. Yeah, right. You know, they're so resistant to the idea of higher consciousness. Right. You know, that there could right. be something beyond the normal human egocentrist consciousness. Right. That they just can't, they've got to poke holes in whatever right. it is.
1: Okay, I get so it.
0: That, so apologists just means. You you may you know that you are respecting the person actually, and you looking for their good qualities, and then mm. they consider that apologist.
1: Yeah. So you have now, your... it's
0: a little derogatory in academia, but maybe I don't know. Is it that a derogatory as um in popular culture? Maybe.
1: I mean, I think it is. It's just because it means they didn't
0: say propagandist. That yeah, that's right. sounds <laughs> your blessing. Yeah, right.
2: Oh.
0: <laughs> actually, the lady was very nice because. You know, normally we wouldn't have a show or an article on ourselves as a family. Mm-hmm. The reason we did it was they promised to highlight the book because yeah. yeah. we want people to know about the book yeah. so they'll get it and enjoy it. Yeah. And, the... uh, and she did that. You mm. know, so that's yeah, it's great. The book
1: is that. available right now?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's available okay. Kindle, paperback, and hardback from Amazon and from local bookstores that are hip. And even in some markets, I've heard that, like in some cities, yeah you know you know um costco has it oh no, really uh, you know, yeah. like Walmart had it. <laughs> oh, oh, wow.
1: That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, really.
0: You know, I heard really? from someone who was sort of snooping around New Haven, around the Yale area, looking for it. Yeah. They found it in such places.
1: Really? Well, really? oh, we encourage yeah, we, everybody to actually uh, go buy it at Amazon, either Kindle or the uh, the hard copy, by the way. You, you've got to get the hard copy, I think. it's it, With something like this, it's so fantastic. The, I mean, it's just it beautiful.
0: Is. It's the first edition. I think the hard copy will be valuable later. Yeah, you know, yeah. Print that many of them. So so we ask you
1: to go do that so you can go through our portal. This is a little uh, commercial oh, okay. in the middle of our thing. So we get a few shekels uh, by virtue of oh, being good. an affiliate oh, of Amazon. So get, And it doesn't cost anybody, and everyone's a winner on that one. Okay, so. good. Um, I want to go right to um, you were 23 years old, and yeah. you were introduced to His Holiness. Just yeah. tell tell me kind of a little bit where you were at before that moment happened what were your proclivities and and had you you just described previously you know how uh, academics are afraid of of a consciousness higher consciousness or they higher, are. yeah and and the fact that at at some points uh, we we that have been on the path for some time and those that got on the path last week realize you are not your mind ego and uh, disturbing <laughs> emotions and thoughts. and um, and then you you know, you start to look and see where it is that you want to land in terms of what path. And right. so where were you at just before you met his Well, I, I,
0: I had dropped out of Harvard in a senior year um, in sixty uh, one, and uh, I uh, would, I would have graduated sixty two. And then from that time on, that fall, fall, autumn of 61 until end of 62, I was a pilgrim in the Muslim countries. They called me a fakir <laughs> because I was, didn't have any money. And I was begging food and, and hitchhiking and hiking to India because I had the idea that India had better cultures, had more. You know, especially what I would call emotional yoga, and psychological yoga. As I'd read up on most of the Western stuff at that time. And uh, by that time, and I just thought that India had something. And i probably Buddhist, I thought, but I wasn't being particular about it. And I met Sufis and I met Christian mystics in Greece before that. And then I met Hindu Swamis, of different kind. And I finally got to India and then when I met the Tibetans, I was like a swan hitting the lotus pond. Mm-hmm. They were, they had the thing. And I actually saw his holiness at that time, 62, but I didn't get to meet him really. I just saw him in a, in a large uh, setting. And I kind of was inspired a little bit by him, but not, I wasn't bowled over. He was still young, you know. Mm. And, um, uh, but I knew something, the Tibetans had something. So I took a job to teach them. Then my father passed away. And I, I had to go back to States. And I met, a, I met a, while I was there, with a return trip back to Delhi to take my job with the Tibetans, I met a Mongolian in New Jersey who I had, you know, I had the vibe, like you talk about, I was hit by a wave. I could hardly walk. It was a karmic thing about him. He was like Mahamaraji, actually, mm. at that time. Mm. And Ogeishi um, uh, Wangyal, you know. And yeah, uh, he, yeah. he taught me for about a year and three quarters and um, that was just total mind-blowing to me. I, I was My mind was blown. And then I was determined to be a monk after about three, four months. And he was determined for me not to be a monk, although I was living like one. He said, and that was fine informally. Hmm. But he already knew. He was so extraordinary. He knew I wouldn't stay a monk already. But I didn't believe it, and I was, like, you know, young. And you know how you are when you're that age. You're omniscient, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: like
0: like professors are today. <laughs> and And you... You won't listen, you know, and I was stupid, so anyway, but anyway, the way it happened, he then took me to Dharamsala finally, hmm. and he introduced me to his Holiness, and he said, well, I, although we first met actually in Sarnath, and he said, um, "This boy wants to be a monk, he's a great scholar, he wants he's very hard, he's a little crazy, but he wants to be a monk. Don't make him a monk, but help see if he teach him, you know he said to his Holiness. But then he said, you can decide about being a monk. I didn't want to make him a monk. You might want to, so whatever. <laughs> so then his holiness and I became more like, like discussion partners than really te- him, him teaching me overtly. And he recommended me to his teachers and set me up with a whole bunch of teachers. And then I, I would ask him also questions from my Buddhist studies, my pre-monk Buddhist studies. And he would deflect them to those teachers, and then we would discuss the world, you know. Because I was fluent in Tibetan already, right away. I mean, within a few months, I was fluent in Tibetan. <laughs> yes. And the... he, he hadn't had a talking partner in Tibetan from the West since Heinrich Harer, you know, who didn't know actually spiritual things. Harer was not an academic, you know. Mm. So he don't had English talking partners, and his English wasn't that strong in those days, but it was okay. But uh, anyway, that was so we became kind of like schoolmate buddies. <laughs> and, and his secretaries hated me because because he would get so involved. And then he would say, no, I, you know, my. Someone else they'd have in the waiting room and he would say, no, I'm still keeping him here. And we're having tea. And all he would ruin his schedule all the time because he was having a like a download of a Harvard education, let's say, or Exeter. You know, I went to all those schools. Mm. And so he was learning about things like that in Tibetan. And I had to make up words. It was, but it was what a privilege. I didn't even realize because he wasn't like my Dharma teacher at that time. And uh, he was more like this kind of friend. And um, I didn't realize how, how magical and what a blessing it was to mm. be with him, just be in his presence, you know. Mm. And it wasn't until the next round, after I became, he made me a monk. And then there was another round about seven, eight years after I went back to States. And then I resigned my monkhood. I wrote letters, but they never answered. I think they were a little annoyed with me. And uh, then uh, I saw him again with my family. And uh, at that point, he started emerging as a great scholar. And again, another seven, eight years or something in his late 30s, he was, you know, like, like he he has that wave that you're talking
2: about. you know. Mm.
0: but but he wasn't there at 28 uh, when i first met him twenty nine. i mean not in the same way it was he had charisma of office of course but charisma of person of that level mm. uh not it developed i saw it develop over the years yeah because he because he really walked his talk he really or, or rather talked his walk whatever he really studied and he <laughs> meditated and he had retreats and he did he did his long thing, he did his things, you know, he really did them. He didn't just sit back and say, I'm Dalai Lama, I should naturally be cool. He set the most rigorous example for everybody.
1: Mm. And so, all of these years, since then, you have been uh, very close to him, and uh, as I said, uh, I have seen you at all of the events, for all practical (laughs) purposes that that I've gone to.
0: I mean, he has lots of other friends, you know, and... uh, you know, he, he loves Danny, he loves Richie Davidson, he yeah. loves all the scientists, he loves. Yeah. He liked Obama, he liked W. oh my God. Yeah. And he he, <laughs> he, he, he he has a lot of friends, and I don't claim to be all over it like that, but, I, you know, I have served him by creating, and my wife has, by creating Tibet House, my kids even have worked on it and so on. Yeah. So we sort of feel that, because we feel he's such a great person, and we feel, and of course, Everyone knows who has a real knowledge of the modern situation that nonviolence is, is the survival mechanism now. It's no longer for those who want to get trampled by a tank or a, or a, a war elephant. It, nonviolence now is survival. If we go on with this militarized, we're going to be doomed. You know? So he's the one who holds that up as a world leader, kind of, although he has no country. And, uh, and he does it so beautifully and humorously and non piously. It's wonderful, you know? yeah. So I really I really he fulfills all of my um aspirations in a way and that's why I, that's why I really I really feel working with him is a privilege and an honor and a joy.
1: And the interesting thing, Bob, uh, this and um this is to say that I have seen him many 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 times over the years. Uh, almost every year I try and get to to see him somewhere. Man. And I have never, and I've been in breakfast, but I have never had one-on-one darshan, as we call it. Oh, really? Oh. Never, just for whatever, circumstances, maybe I didn't pursue it aggressively, whatever it was, because I have friends that probably could have arranged it, but I haven't. But there's a way in which, uh, and you have had, of course, this incredible closeness, which is really what I was referring to. Right. But there's a way in which... the transmittal, the transmission of, uh-huh. of, of his core who he is, is is so ever-present in a moment-to-moment basis with everybody he, he meets and also with these very large audiences that he teaches to. I have That's always true. felt this a kind of connection with him I guess part of it was, OK, there was no need for me to pursue, to say, OK, I, I met him and I'd love to. But I, I also found a lot of fulfillment just being with him in, in the environment that I was. That's
0: true. That's why. Well, that's because you're more sensitive. Some people get very frustrated. They want to go practically and give him a hug and they don't need to do that if they're really open, because he is this kind of my wife actually said it very well once. When this one, this sort of Hindu, uh, a gentleman who was very into spiritual teachers, Indian gentleman, asked me if I'd ever seen his home to a miracle or something super normal. I never used the word supernatural or super normal. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking what to say. You know, I, there, I have seen and felt some sort of super things, but how you're not supposed to really yeah. plug those things or what to say. So my wife breaks in. She says, oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> and I'm looking like, what? And then he's all sitting on the edge of his chair. And she says, well, I've been in many situations with him, hosting him here and there or in crowded things, and he's very stressed and everybody wants a piece of him and blah, blah, blah. But I have never seen him, all of those situations over many years, not give his absolute full attention to whoever he is with. And in a way, Mm -hmm. perceive the situation almost from that other person's point of view of what they need and want and so on. And I've never seen him not be like that, she said. So the guy goes, Oh, like he didn't get sure. it. You yeah. know? He wanted like a rabbit out of a hat. Yeah. You know? yeah. but, but I think she was absolutely right. You know, I defer to the female wisdom. She 100%, uh, that is his thing. Is I think people feel suddenly this kind of acceptance and attention and like someone's mind is sort of fused with theirs in a total like a concern I won't say motherly or fatherly but in a relational way uh, where, where they suddenly are feeling themselves more actually and feeling secure and feeling open and then people will break into tears and all sorts of things like that it, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be one on one it can be in large groups too yeah. may, as he's grown older and more and more Powerful in a way in his love for everyone and his ability to identify with everyone, uh, he has that effect all the way, you know.
1: Yeah, and I, your wife is right. That is the miracle. It absolutely is the miracle. I mean, there's some, somebody, there's a quote that I've used before on podcasts around the most generous act that you can perform with another human being is full attention.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's right
1: and he yeah. he does that in space i mean i've seen just little there's little miracles like the sound guy comes to adjust his microphone etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh you know before the the talk is going to start and the way that he, with full-on presence with this being he yeah. completely just is with him and envelops him and And engages with him. It might even be for thirty seconds, but that thirty seconds, uh, just invaluable moment for this whoever this was, you know. So uh, it's an extraordinary, um, miraculous thing. uh,
0: Paul Aikman, you know that story. Uh, Danny, uh, go tell you the story of Paul Aikman.
1: uh, Paul told it to me. I did a podcast with Paul. Yeah, no, that yeah, and he still to this day doesn't know. He can't say. I don't know what happened.
0: I know, <laughs> he lost his foul temper, you know. Yeah, yeah. So just like that. Yeah, and just it like that. Wasn't his problem, it wasn't his, was not his issue anymore after like maybe 10 minutes of hand-holding.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so kind of amazing. <laughs> um, I want to just talk a bit about, there's a couple of things that uh, obviously are, I have been delving in with various friends and teachers and so on, um, and it's it's around... What's going on today, which yes. is a very difficult, difficult uh, time that we're in. And, yes. and it's stuff that I talked to Ramdas about because he has been involved in social action over many, many, many years. And, um, and you, there's a term, and it may be off center from what I'm thinking about, that, that I saw somewhere where you use called uh, loving activism. Yes. Loving resistance. Yes, Could you talk about that? Because I th- sure. I think we're all having a lot of trouble in terms of our reactions to this, and and so easy for anger to emerge. I know. So easy.
0: It's, it would be normal for us all to be furious with anger, and yep. then the only people who would most suffer would be ourselves, being so angry. You know, it's like the 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 the, the, the radical activists, either right or left side extremists who, you know, is upset about something far away from them, and actually they're in a perfectly decent setting with nice people, and then they get all enraged, and then that poisons the setting they're in, and doesn't have any effect on the person, you know, just talking about that person, and the the persons who they're annoyed with, the government or whatever, doesn't have any effect on them. And so uh, love is defined in Buddhism. When I say that, I'm meaning, as love is defined in Buddhism, which is a wish for the happiness of the beloved, and uh, true altruistic, in other words, not the, not you know agape, not, not the eros, so much. Although it has an eros component, of course, definitely, but it's a more it's more like may the beloved be happy. That's love. And um, if our enemy was happy, they would not be so obnoxious about about us. You know, for example, take the current person who is mis, 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 mislocated in the White House, <laughs> uh, you know, who really would, doesn't want to be in public housing ever in his life, and who is very um, unhappy type of, you can see, very dissatisfied, very unhappy, tending to anger all the time. His body is painful for him to kind of haul around, he's a strong, but his a natural strength, but he, he's abusing it with bad food and whatever, and, and a lot of anger, which is very, very bad for a circulatory system. And this has put him in a situation where he has to be angry with the whole world because he feels that he's in a position where the whole world should do whatever he says. And it's not doing that. And so that's a miserable person. And he's lashing and thrashing out in this misery. And so we all do want him to be happy. If he was happy, he would resign. He would go and hang in Mar-a-Lago and say, okay, so you guys take care of it, whatever. Although, then he'd just be fighting not to pay taxes. But he wouldn't <laughs> have to fight every other issue on the planet. And, you know, he, he loves to be in a room with 3,000 people or 4,000 people in aircraft hangar or 20,000 all saying yay, yay, yay when he lies to them about what, he, what he's doing. But he loves the adulation energy, you know. But, you know, it's like Brahma said to Buddha years ago in the Buddhist literature, I love it when they worship me, but when things go really horribly for them, I hate it when they all hate me. <laughs> and, of course, when people are losing their insurance because of his budget, when they're losing Medicaid because of his budget, when they're losing, et cetera, et cetera everything, losing their lives or their relatives by his new wars, which he's doing to distract people from his own incompetence domestically, then uh, they're going to hate him. And then he's going to get the opposite of that thing and he'll be even more miserable and more dangerous and to himself and to us. So loving loving activism is not just uh, sitting back and saying, oh, it's great, just ruin me or kill me. Come kill me. Or ruin it. Well, loving activism could be quite harsh, actually, in some case, in, in actual action, like arresting somebody or saying something to them, directly refuting what they're, you know, like bluntly saying, you, you're all, you're crazy or you're wrong. It, you know, it could be something forceful, but more like the force of a martial artist, like good old grasshopper, remember? <laughs> old grasshopper, you know, he would throw the cowboy out the window with a smile on his face yeah. and in a relaxed manner, you know, so the cowboy would be charging him with his gun, you know. And so, so not the angry, furious type of fun, so, so that's loving activism where it's like Gandhi's thing of holding truth, you know, satyagraha, meaning even though you're opposing this policeman or this person and you're and you're in front of them, you are not thinking that they automatically have to be evil. And therefore, when they hit you with the cane and you're doing salt protest, you're talking to that cop saying, you know, you really don't want to do that you're the judge who said or the british overlord who said that was making an unjust thing and you don't really want to be his agent and believing that he can change his mind and you you know the truth of the situation is stronger than whatever robot activity he was doing so that's in the same line of where you are seeing the opponent not as a object of hatred but an object of concern you want them to be better off and you feel to oppose them is helping them getting better off in the particular case. Mm. And, um, and so that's, I think, the pussy hat phenomenon and the happy march. I believe, actually, the marches that happened worldwide are maybe 30, 40 million people, which the press did not report to us because they're funded by war industries and so on. But I believe that was the first of the really happy protests against the Iraq invasion. People with children, with baby carriages and balloons, but lots of bodies in the street, and then they were diverted here and there, so we couldn't get the force of it. Uh, and and the pussy hat thing, those people in Washington, we marched in our little village upstate, I think small villages all over the country did. They were happy occasions. And this is the key, I think. Shantideva, you know the great Shantideva, you must have heard his holiness teach it many times. It's his only special thing. Mm. And that is Try to find the sources of happiness within yourself and around you and then help the people who are unhappy and therefore causing evil. Try not to cause that evil and by sharing your happiness. And you, you may have to share it with someone who's about to do some terrible thing by stopping them from doing that. So that might you have to be forceful even sometimes. Like a mother will be forceful with a child who is hurting itself or going to hurt something else or hurt another sibling or something in some careless way, they'll be forceful, but they don't hate the child. They just love the child, but the love makes them, but you can have fierce love, you know? You can have fierce compassion, and you don't feel sick like you do when you're angry inside, like all choked up, you know, and like thrashing out of a feeling of constriction in the diaphragm and the throat, you know, when people are angry and they get, they get choked up. You're feeling like a skater who's going to do a triple axel <laughs> and you're going to say, screw you. Like, don't do that stupid thing. Don't be an idiot in a happy way. And maybe call, point out, because you, you're cool, you have good judgment, you can be like one of the great comedians. You can point out something that might let them see how foolish they're being, Something ultimately. Mm. Not always, but sometimes. Mm. So yeah. that's what we need, because we saw the Russian Revolution, Chinese Revolution, all the violent revolutions led to just terrible violence and gandhi's nonviolent revolution would not have led to any violence the british inflicted it by partitioning pakistan you know then there was that terrible stuff with the, with people being completely dislocated but that the british did that because they still wanted to use india as a resource base for their factories and they knew that the indians are very smart and would start to build a big industrial base the minute they were free and and so they but they by creating that division they weakened them and Mm. Slowed down their development enormously, Churchill, you know, and Mountbatten, yeah. those guys. They're no good old imperialists, you know. Yeah, we, S- you know, you gotta love them. They, they, they at least got all the good Indian restaurants on Brompton Road.
2: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Saved yeah. the British Empire from <laughs> thousands of years of bad food,
1: <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> right, well, that that is uh, loving activism. Uh, um, I mean, I love the phrase, and I love your definition of it and uh contextualization because it's i think it's really important for all of us but but uh, what what do you have in mind and maybe what do you do for yourself because it is easy for all of us to to get knee-jerk reaction sure uh, when you just uh you wake up in the morning if you happen to read the new york times which i do um uh, it's 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 very 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 depressing at times i know well
0: well if you All you have to do there is watch Fox News for half an hour, and then the New York Times seems like nirvana.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, But so what are the things, I mean, this is one of the things I like to share with people on on this uh, podcast is what are the things that we, there are things that we need to do to be able to even... Uh, catch this kind of reactivity to be able to progress to a place where you actually can look at somebody else and go, they want to be happy just like I want to be happy. What, right. what are the things you do for yourself, or you, you might even recommend to students and so on, in terms of uh, how to get into that m- more spacious atmosphere right. within yourself?
0: Well, right. Well, what I would say is we have to imitate women. And women have to imitate women in their essential nature. You know, one time I was uh, in a in a dialogue with someone I forgot where, and they were because I have this idea in my Inner Revolution book about cool heroes. I talk about and that's the loving the loving activists. You know, and I used to have cool heroism. Then they said, "Well, so who's the cool hero?" I don't say any. I say, "Oh, hot heroes," you know, warriors and fighters and everything. Someone asked me, and I was thinking like. Oh yeah, who can you can't just say Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and Martin Luther King, and that's it. <laughs> oh we have a long way to go. Yeah. So I was, my mind was churning. Suddenly I realized, of course, I thought of a family scene where brothers are fighting, father and son are fighting. It could become physical, a kind of a wrestle or something or blows even. And who's in the middle of that? in many families? The mother, the sister. Oh no, dear! You didn't mean that. No, don't say that about your brother. Don't say that about your dad. Don't say that about your son. And then sometimes, the, if they're really mad, then they'll push them out of the way. They'll hit them, and they that they stay in there. They bring in their oxytocin, <laughs> you know, their inter- interconnecting hormone, and they try to keep people real remembering they're connected and they're all right. They have this environmental awareness, as some writers call it. So, so. That, I think, is very important. The male tends to charge ahead, you know, and gets this gut reaction of fury and anger. And like, I'm going to straighten it out with and anger makes them feel strong because they get all red in the face and charge ahead. But actually, it weakens them, as any martial artist will tell them, as they toss them on their butt because they're angry and they're off balance, you know. Yeah. So I think the cool heroes and the ones who exemplify this are women in general not every single one of course but just as a general principle they don't release that cortisol and fury and adrenal thing or that, that when they get into stress they go lateral and they they try to connect to the environment and help others connect to the reality of the situation which when if you and the more realistic you are about a situation the more you are aware that violent interaction intervention will not be effective it will cause counter violence inevitably that will be worse so whereas you lose that when you lose your temper. So what people can do, I think, is, for example, they're shouting, no more this, no cutting a Medicaid, no cutting a Medicaid, you don't cut Medicaid, something like that. And they'll think like, who's around me? I'm feeling OK at the moment. My voice is functioning. You know, nobody cut it yet. The, the, the bad guys could change their minds, we will keep protesting, we're not going to just have a fit and think it's because out of despair people start having fits and furies. and if they can't do anything and they'll be violent or if they can't do anything violent, they'll get depressed afterwards, really badly depressed. They'll feel depleted by the rage and the adrenal charge and the cortisol and everything. So the key thing is to be forceful, be in, be pro do your pussy hat march. But the pussy hat itself reminds people of something softer, of something pleasant. And everybody has something pleasant. You know, they they hold hands with somebody. They sing or whatever. You know, find something pleasant in what's going on around you as best you can. And, of course, sometimes it's really, you know, you're being tortured, something, someone's being violent against you. Then just try to roll out of the way. Be like a drunk and be flexible and like fall over in a relaxed way, and don't tensely resist, you know, like, like a martial artist who tries to twist out of the way of the violent thrust, you know. So so that's all I can say. It's like, and, and the, the counter example, of course, is as I said, the person who's a big, great, like, you know, protester speaks truth to power, and they come in a room with a bunch of other like minded people, and somebody else says, well, maybe it'll work out here. Then they get all irate and they create a few, create a bad vibe in the room of planning how to try to change the situation so actually they let the bad situation infect the good situation by not being aware of where they are and so the more mindfulness people can practice the more being in the moment of you know what's around them like those people in washington they they're dealing with a lunatic uh, in the white house and also lunatics who've been held back by obama from getting at our jugular veins for eight years, and are now feeling free to attack. And they are attacking, you know, legislatively trying to unravel. They're attacking FDR, for crying out loud, as hard as they can, attacking the environment. And yet, these people in Washington were happy. They were enjoying being with each other. They were enjoying the the sense of the massive presence. And that was good, because... They, you know, In fact, what, the, what a bad regime, a dictatorial regime, will do in those situations is they'll use agent provocateur and they will send in some anar- supposed anarchist or fake person, like Al Ginsberg told me they did in Chicago in 1968, and they'll send a fake yippee or a fake hippie, or an anti-war protester, and that guy will start insulting the cops or throwing things or doing something violent to bring down, to stir up the police and then create a riot. So, so the one thing that's so powerful that the oppressive forces, she should start. She should start the oppressive forces right away. Okay, she knows where to go. I'll catch I'm up.
2: Going the restaurant.
0: Yeah, too. So, uh, she, sorry, she. So, so that's a danger. And then, then even more so, the people who are on the good side and are not going to let themselves lose their temper no matter what. You know, I have a terrible slogan I wrote in my Why the Dalai Lama Matters book at the end, when the publisher challenged me to come up with 10 points of hope about the China-Tibet situation, which is a very difficult situation. Tibetans have burned their bodies, 150 of them, without hurting anybody else. You know, in the last four or five years, they feel it's so unacceptable what's going on. They've given up their, made an offering of their own body, which is a Thing in, it would, never was a thing in Tibetan Buddhism. It's a thing in Chinese Buddhism, actually. And the Vietnamese guy did it in the Vietnam War, if you remember. Mm-hmm. But all kinds of Tibetans have done this—157 or eight, I think, at the latest count. And against all lamas' wishes, he doesn't want that. Please don't do that. You know, protest in another way. But in another way, it's very powerful. It's, it shows that. It shows that. Yeah. But my point is, and I'm not <laughs> recommending that to anybody, by the way. I'm just saying it's something intense about it when that situation is a real torture a really horrible situation. But anyway, I say in the book, the goal is to be so happy that even if they kill us, we'll die happy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. I know it's awful. I like it because when I give a talk to a, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, you know, an audience that is sort of would come to see a Buddhist speaker on ethics or on politics, and therefore, are pretty much for me, for you, for one, for the Dalai Lama, etc. Then they are about to give a an ovation or something at the end of one of my one of my rants speeches. And then by saying that, it's like a, they jump up like, oh, then oh, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of calms them down, uh, makes them more realistic.
2: Yeah. But of uh,
0: course, that's the only way to counter terrorism and terror is don't be terrorized. Don't be hate. Don't even hate the horribly bad guys. Feel you, you have to feel even more sympathetic. You know those poor young people from Egypt and from everywhere out there doing those atrocious things they were doing. Had just gone from bad to worse. But their real problem is their sexual repression of themselves in their youth and their total frustration and their and then then rage making them into inhuman. Yeah. Behavior.
1: Yeah, and no work, and no money, and no job, no future. You know, all of exactly. it. So all thrown exactly. into the the same thing. I, yeah. I, I do. I do love uh, what you. But in terms of a. Um, Something to counter the reactivity, I think, uh, for uh, I would have thought, okay, let's talk about Vipassana meditation, which of course yeah, is, yeah, is well, another that's the good thing. To, that's yeah, the mind- right, mindfulness stuff. Yeah, that's
0: the, what they call Vipassana. Vipassana includes more of that than that, actually. Yeah, but yeah, that's what yeah. people know about it. And that's, of course, very, very important, that kind of meditation, which in order to see how the, your reactivity mechanisms function in your mind. And find some gaps there to be able to intervene, uh, you know. But on the other hand, I'm afraid that a lot of those people are not activists because they get into a thing of like, well, I would just get lose my temper, it wouldn't be good, and also nothing I can do. And you know, they, I'm sorry, but they get sort of quietized. <laughs> and they I'm going to meditate. That's how I'm going to help the planet. And sometimes that's true and that's good, but you know, actually, the bodhisattva vow is to help all beings and you have to develop yourself while you do it but then sometimes you have to also get out there and vote for example, that in itself you know, this bad government we have happens because less than 50% of the eligible voters in this country vote. In Europe they have little better governments in most places because they had a world war on their property and they noticed that's no fun You know, when you start going the wrong way, you know, in a negative way, and it gets endless Mm. cycle of violence and negativity. And so there's something more where the 90 percent of the people vote. They even have laws in Sweden, places like that. You have to vote. Mm. Motor voter registration is normal there. It isn't a matter of, gee, where, you know, we'll let the Republican state legislators block it so that less people will vote. The bad guys don't want people to vote, of course, because they don't like democracy. They want autocracy, you know. Mm. But, but you know, our, we the the activists, the loving people, the friendly, kind people in this country are still more numerous than the lunatics, definitely, by far. If even 75 or 80 percent voted of eligible voters, we would have mm-hmm. so much better government. Yeah. Yeah. We would have come back to our high ground that we've occasionally achieved in the world, you know, yeah. uh, in different eras where other people had were soaking in blood their whole country. And we've occasionally not. But of course, we have also soaked a lot in blood, yep. of course. Yep. But but sometimes not. So And we have an ideal of not doing so. In, expressed in our documents, you know, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, they tried to prevent that from happening, Franklin. And, and then they said, you know, we made the system. Now let's see if you guys can live it, you know. Yeah. And that's uh, they were imperfect themselves and they knew it. Hmm. And uh, and we are all still imperfect, and we and we know it. Mindfulness will enable us to know it better.
1: But I think, yeah. But at the and same, we will try to, yeah.
0: You know, baby. But the other the other thing is Bill Murray's great precept. What? He's my local Buddha. If you ever saw the movie, what about Bob?
1: Uh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Baby steps. Baby steps. a
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: little, right. little bit, <laughs> the guy who goes off for the long retreat, like Sharon talks about. At their retreat place where he's like, I'm gonna really get it now. And I'm gonna go, you know, I'm gonna go for the one month, you know. Huh. And about two, you know, eight, ten days later he's leaving in a fury, saying, It doesn't work.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> bit by bit. So don't set a high too high a goal and go bit by bit. And you know, it's mm. in all cultures anyway. Take ten deep breaths, you know. Thomas Jefferson said, If you're really angry, take a hundred. Seneca, the Stoic, thousands of years ago said, never make a judgment or a decision when you're angry. Even a judge, judging the most horrendous criminal, don't pronounce the sentence until they are calm down later. When you're first hearing all the evidence and you're furious, then say, "Okay, court adjourned. And then go calm down and then make a rational, Mm -hmm. non-angry judgment. So in general, the more people learn to control their temper, and I speak as one who from youth had a hot temper, and mm-hmm. uh, it was known as getting quickly angry,
2: mm.
0: and uh every little bit you can minimize it, even baby step like only get angry for two minutes fifty nine seconds instead of three minutes yeah <laughs> you'll yeah. that much better, you'll feel that much better, you'll be that much healthier, you'll be much more effective even in situations of stress
2: yeah I
1: like your so, thing though of uh, so yeah i r-
0: i i can talk about meditation but, yeah I
1: I, know, I I love you. i love th-
0: what meditation and with what perspective yeah And I think, I promised one time Mayor Bloomberg he was going to run for president. He was thinking about it. So I said, well, two, you know, you have to take a vice president from somewhere, pick the right one, A, B, A, and B, um, you know, to get the Buddhist vote, do nonviolence, you know, and all the Buddhists will vote for you. And then he looked at me like, what do you mean? That's a tiny vote. I said, No. The, ones, the great thing about Buddhism is you can be a Jubu, Chris Hinbu, Hindu. We don't have many open musboos, but we will. <laughs> Sekbu, secular Buddhist. And you don't have to announce some formal denominational thing. You just try to control your negative habits and your negative feelings, and you try to be nice and be happy, nice to yourself, nice to others. And then you might enhance that with meditating. But thats it. you have to have that orientation ahead of time. Mm. That that's what you're about. If you meditate thinking that by meditating I'm going to leave the world and go into vast space and have nothing to do with any of this boring stuff, then you're going to get more psychotic than you already
2: yeah. are. <laughs> and yeah. but
0: so you know it's not a panacea. It, yeah. it has to do with yeah. how you how you use it to enhance your deeper understanding and your more powerful, loving, compassionate orientation toward others and
1: what you That's started it. this whole thing out with is what i love and in combination with mindfulness and so on is absolutely embracing the feminine within yes. each one of absolutely. within totally. ourselves and by you, uh, examples totally. that are outside of ourselves and by True. reading and by really immersing in the reality of what because uh, yeah. that's where compassion comes from yeah. It's his holiness said the greatest thing we'd all be fine if our mothers loved us the way that my mother loved exactly. me That he said that goes a long way to the, the reality of the compassion that I have today
0: and now we show him in the book he sneaks out of the potala back to the house where the parents are and his mother gives him a whole little bowl full of boiled eggs because he's not allowed to eat eggs in the pot <laughs> and he's munching his egg where there's a little scene in the book
2: uh, and
0: and then some monk is coming also upset that he's eating the egg but also he has to go back for his lesson and he's munching this egg and he shouts go away <laughs> uh, <laughs> so great there's a few things in there right there
1: uh, so great Well, okay. look, one one thing before we go yes. okay, okay for you to just get in just a, a short thing on, but it's something yes. that we bump into all the time. Okay. Uh and I think it's it's absolutely crucial. I'll just tell you a little story just to kick it off. Um okay, I once you know Roshi Joan Halifax, I'm sure. I do. And I, do. I was uh, I love her. Yes, I love her too and we were we were Roshi doing th-
0: Joan of Arc, I call her yeah. St. Joan.
1: <laughs> yeah. We were doing a little <laughs> thing together and I just said to her at one point, look, you've been friends with Ramdas forever you're a zen buddhist tell me and you've seen neem karoli baba you've seen pictures with ramdas all the time of course everywhere and you are you are hang out with us all you know at all these retreats that we do and so on what in the world do you think about this being when you look at that picture and she turned to me well, and she no maharaji when you look oh, at maharaji, the picture yeah, okay. of neem karoli baba which you've seen so much because of your relationship with ramdas and and others of us and she said to me, "When I look at his picture, what I get back is some uh, through his eyes is empty, he's empty, Empathy. empty emptiness oh
0: empty empty
1: empty yeah, and uh and i and then that made me recall what Ramdas once said when he was talking about a moment of being with maharaji, he just- he was talking about the um." Uh, love without a cause, basically, that, that we all felt, or there was no reason, unconditional, completely. Yeah, absolutely. And he said, You know, he was so, he just kept repeating in one moment, he was so empty. He was so empty. And I understand that, of course, by having that experience, but I sure would like you to talk about emptiness in a way that it really does affect, it's not a lofty thing to realize, I think uh, there's something to it for us on a day-to-day basis of, of, of working course. with
0: it. Of course, my favorite phrase, I think, is Holiness's favorite phrase, a favorite phrase of everybody since Nagarjuna's time, which would be from around 100 before the Common Era to around five 600 of the Common Era. He had a very long life, like Methudela, according to us, not according to modern whatever. And anyway, uh, he, he wrote... In one of his works, uh, the deepest teaching is emptiness, the womb of compassion. Or you could translate the word for womb as essence, but, but emptiness, the womb of compassion. And that's, a, you know, shunyata karna garbham in Sanskrit. And it's very interesting that you say that Ramdas, I love Ramdas, I've known him since, Ramdas himself since 1959, 1960, really longer, longer than I've known Dalai Lama. In I was an undergraduate at Harvard in, in the days when he was there Dr. Richard. And uh, I love that guy. And, and um, uh, when I first met my first teacher, my root teacher, what they call in Buddhism, although now Dalai Lama is my certain absolute guru, but my root teacher was Geshe Wangyal. And when someone asked me, after I met him, who had driven me to see him in his funny little monastery in New Jersey, and I said, that's my teacher. I'm coming back. I'm staying here forever. I am all going crazy like that. As we were leaving our first visit. And he said, well, what's with him? He's just this humble little guy there, like in New Jersey, in this house, a little temple in there. Like, what is this? And I said, why you have been seeing gurus all over the place? You're on your way back to India. Why him? I said, well, because, I said, all the gurus I've seen were so full of their own holiness, although in a good way, that I always felt someone there's no room for me. Whereas this guy is not even there. He's so empty. And therefore, I know that he will only focus on on me in the sense of he'll know what I need and want, you know. So I can trust him, you know, that's what I said. And at the time, I didn't even know what I was saying. I can tell you now. <laughs> it just automatically came up. Because these great beings, the the point is, and Dalai Lama is saying now, when I first met him, maybe not so much because he was so stressed and worried, he had such heavy responsibilities, he was young. But now definitely he's, he is empty in the sense that, in the same way, in that he, he is um, not full of himself. He is uh, right. he's not thinking, you know, that we have this thing, Shantideva teaches, the Ur teaching, but Buddha taught it, but he, he articulates it, where you don't think about what am I getting out of this situation? You forget about that, and you only think about what is somebody else getting out of whatever it is all the time. So you're switching. They call it the exchange of self and other, but what it means is you're exchanging self preoccupation, being caught in your cycle of thoughts about me, me, me. What am I getting? What do I want? Where am I? What about me? And you're thinking about well, what about whoever it is, you know, and them. Or you know, when you're meditating and no one's there, it's all of them. And when a few of them are there, it's this or that one. Or all of them that are there and so that's the, the emptiness is that in their orientation is to feel what the others are feeling and i i sort of when i see pictures of maharaji i feel the sweetness in him so much when i see and i kick myself every time i think about it or i meet anybody that i kept driving back and forth sometimes i was one of the few people who had a car on that almora mountain in those days so I was like an ambulance in towel. I would be taking people, often people who had broken things and you know mm-hmm. sick in various ways, and uh, or shopping back and forth, you know, or having to go see the Dalai Lama, driving off to Dharamsala from Elmora. and so I never stopped to see he, that great person, you know, and uh, when but when I you know and the, uh, the sweetness to me transmits most strongly in a way. It's interesting since I knew Richard or Ramda so long. He is kind of I see him as like an amazing holy figure, and his whole thing of since his stroke and everything is out there uh, more so even although his articulate he was of course so articulate a person and so what an amazing lesson for him to be uh, be a little constrained in that respect and uh, deepening I think it really had a wonderful sannyasin sort of level time and uh, but I, I think it was K D who transmitted to me. Somehow the sweetness of Maharaji. And then when I saw Maharaji in films or in pictures, you know, from sort of under the KD bhakti, you know, mm-hmm. I could feel this tremendous sweetness, you know. Mm-hmm. Which, and then I don't regret much because I feel he's, he's around, he's a manifestation, he's the same being as Geshi, my Shiwango, as Dalai Lama, he, you know, Avalokiteshvara, you know. You know, Avalokita, the, the, the Buddhist notion, it was the original Bhakti thing in ancient India, whether people know it or not. And, and Ishvara means God, you know, Ishvara part. But Avalokita is a kind of little bit of a, of a subtle uh, tweak against the idea of the big, powerful God you're scared of.
2: Mm.
0: Because Avalokita means who looks at you with loving care. So it's the god who looks lovingly toward you, Avalokita Ishvara. Hmm. So so, hmm. so it is a, and it's considered the incarnation of the compassion of all Buddhas. Not just this Buddha or that Buddha, you know, the Avalokita Ishvara. Right. And the sixth, Karmapa is an emanation of that. The Dalai Lama. There are many other Tibetan ones. Many women who would associate it with Tara uh, are incarnations of that. And this is something Westerners are, get puzzled about. But that kind of being is not limited that they have to only emanate as once at a time you know because of the jesus thing people get all hung up okay there's like one emanation who's the big one you know this sort of thing you know but but in the indian thing the generosity of love and compassion cosmic almost theistic you have to say love and compassion is so powerful that even though the the creators were are were relativized by the Buddhist science ins insight, not to anthropomorphize the absolute. But but so the, the gods are all there, you know, cute Shivas over here, Vishnu's over there, then which one is bigger? You know, they, they do that. But in a way they admit all of them. They don't mind it. So so similarly the idea of the emanation, the nirmana, the magical emanation of enlightened beings, is unlimited. It's just unlimited. And uh So they're all around us, and you know, I I might be looking at one right now for all I know, (laughs) and uh, uh, I know I'm not quite there yet. But that that Maharaji would be exactly same like Dalai Lama or Sixteenth Karmapa or. I get from Larry Brilliant, he, he has this whole thing in his mind. He's merged together the 16th Karmapa and, and Maharaji. I can feel it yeah. when, yeah. He, talks, when yeah. he talks about it. Yeah, we've
1: talked about it. I we've had the same experience. That's,
0: yeah. That's absolutely accurate. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they're just the same people. It doesn't yeah. matter Hindu, Buddhist, right. Jubu, Buju, whatever. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Actually, Dalai Lama <laughs> likes Jubu and Chris boo and other Boos <laughs> because. He doesn't want people to become boo-boos. Yeah. He wants them to stay with their grandparents' <laughs> religion, uh, not to upset their grandparents.
1: Uh, yeah, right.
0: And so a few weirdos like me, he says, well, some people can't help themselves, <laughs> and and I'm not a very good Buddhist anyway, but... But um, it's because it's mm. knowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm a knowledge freak, you know, yeah, yeah. Right? intuitive, uh, anyhow, experiential knowledge. I am that kind
1: of a freak. Uh, beautiful.
0: Anyway, I, love, I love Ram Dass. Please give him my love.
1: I will do that. And, and uh, what a beautiful uh, definition of the reality of emptiness and exactly uh,
2: yeah, what but I, I
0: okay. Coming back to that, let me just a little more. Coming back to that, see, the empty thing is, suddenly, it only get, it can't happen by thinking, or oh, I'm going to be empty now. It only happens by having to look inside yourself, and and eventually at some point you will see through yourself, because you won't find any self. And then, okay, you can go ahead and call that thing that you didn't find the Paramatma, that it was you and it couldn't find itself, Why would, I guess you think a knife can't cut itself, you can do that sort of thing. Or, what you can also do, if you have a little more technical, analytical mind, is you realize that... If you, once you're looking through yourself, you see everybody else. Hmm. You have become, and then everybody else is there. And then you once you see that you're not a rigid stuck thing in there, you feel so much better inside. It's like you melt this little, I also used to joke, it's like uh, uh, the, your birth doctor, your gynecologist left a clamp in the, inside you, in the baby. <laughs> You've had it clamping your heart all this time. Hmm. And suddenly that is released. It's not clamped anymore, and you feel so much better. Mm. And then you, you perceive the clamps in others' hearts, and then you want them to figure out. You can't go in and rip it out. You're not a Filipino surgeon. But <laughs> you, you, you uh, know that how, they, how by understanding themselves, they will do it. So in other words, when you realize your own emptiness, you immediately realize your interconnection with all of other people. The mm. real meaning of emptiness is not space. That's just an analogy. Like, you know, some people wrongly teach it that, oh, yeah, you know, space out and everything's cool. No, that's wrong. Space itself is empty. And what happens is emptiness is, a, is a, means relativity. So, therefore, when you realize your total relativity, then you realize your connection with every being. And they're all your mothers. And you've been their mothers. And, you know, you have to love them because you're stuck with them. Yeah. So... You better have to optimize your relationship mm.
1: with them. No, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So that's the thing. This has been so great hanging out with you like this, God. I, I could so. do this. We, uh, if I, uh, this would be a a monthly occurrence if I could make it so. I love. Uh, to. I'd just, love to. I love uh, to. Uh, It's so Listen, great in I this kind to of run. sharing. I yes, I know. And and I'm going to say to everybody, uh, please go get you know what? man of Peace.
0: Okay. Yeah. Get man a piece we're still on. I wanted to talk to you. There oh, it is. Great. Hey, great. there it is. Man of Peace. That's a great painting of Alex Gray showing the thousand arm devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, great. I, I, could I talk to you just a personal call? I have something I want to ask you about. Okay.
1: All right. So everybody, um, I uh, this is Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. and Go to Be Here Now Network and uh, you'll see uh, where you can get Man of Peace and other works from Bob and uh, he is a seminal figure in, uh, in, in, in certainly of our time and someone uh, I'm so happy we finally did do this, Bob, and we'll do I'm more of it. And uh, everybody, we'll see you next week on Mind Rolling.